Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 480. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 480 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer, and mastering engineer Pete Grossman, who is the owner of Bricktop Recording in Chicago, Illinois. Pete has worked with Vale of Maya, Inclination, Frail Body, Gates to Hell, and Weekend Nachos, to name a few. And we're going to have a great conversation and talk all about Pete's journey. Pete Grossman coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about business continuity. This idea of business continuity comes to us from good friend of the show and longtime listener, Chris Lee. Chris, thanks for the ideas here. Let me lay out the scenario for you. You have a studio. It's running well. You have tons of clients, lots of projects midway into wherever they're at. You know, some, are, some projects are in the middle of, you know, starting the, the tracking process. Some projects are at the, in the mixing process. And some projects might be at the tail end. And some projects haven't even come in yet, but they've laid down deposits. And some projects are finished and they owe you money. So what are you going to do if you're the only person that knows how everything runs, knows where all the accounts receivable and accounts payable information is, knows the status of all the projects? What if you are the lone person that knows everything? You might think, well, that's a great, great thing. No, it's not a great thing. Because what if something happens to you? What if you wind up in the hospital? What if you, I don't know, think of the worst case scenario. Let's say you get hit by a bus and you're in a coma. What are you going to do about the day-to-day business? Because everything with you out of the picture is going to come to a halt. Because all those bands were relying on you. The rent or mortgage getting paid was relying on you. The ecosystem of that studio is depending on you, and there you are in the hospital, unable to speak for yourself, unable to advocate for yourself, unable to make decisions about this business. What do you think is going to happen? Your clients are not going to know what the hell's going on. The landlord or the bank is going to start to say, hey, what's going on here? How come we're not getting paid? We might have to foreclose or we might have to uh, evict. Everything is going to pile up, long story short. Okay, problem one, let's solve that. Don't be the only person that knows where everything is is placed. Don't be the one part of the equation that if taken out, destroys the whole, whole thing. Let's assume you're gonna wake up from the coma in two weeks or a month or six months. You wanna make sure that somebody has keys to the studio, the alarm codes, knows where the projects are, knows how to take over knows how to step in to make sure it gets running properly. That could be, you know, your partner, your spouse, your best friend, one of your friends in one of the bands you record. It could be a number of people, but you need to make sure that when you are out of the picture, everything can run smoothly 
and everybody can survive without you for a short period of time. Now, obviously, there is the, the even worst case scenario that you get taken out entirely. Let's say that bus that hits you doesn't put you into a coma, but kills you, right? So depending on the financial arrangement you have with your family, maybe that studio is the sole source of income for you, your spouse, and your two kids. Now what, right? Do you have life insurance? Does your spouse know where that life insurance paperwork is? Do you have all the things to cover the studio so that, you know, somebody can take over and keep that income flowing? I know these are hard, not fun questions to be asking. It, it's not musical. It's not what you want to be spending your time doing. I get it, but it's so critical. People have to know what's going on. I'm not going to solve all of your problems in this one rant, but here's some things to be thinking of. The long and short of it is, is you need to make sure to sit down and ask yourself the question, what if, and then imagine the worst case scenario. What if I was incapacitated? How would the rent get paid? How would the mortgage get paid? Start with that and then start moving through and making sure that there's somebody in your life that can handle all that shit. Because if the shit hits the fan and you're out of the picture, either short term or permanently, you don't wanna leave everybody with a bag of burning shit here. You want to make sure that there this is a smooth operation and that the continuity of the business will continue. It's just like, you know, in the US government, they have a continuity plan, right? Something happens to the president, the vice president steps in. Something happens happens to the vice president, uh, speaker of the house steps in and it goes down the list, right? There is a plan for every eventuality. Well, we at least hope there's a plan for every eventuality in that case. But in your studio case, in your business case, just cover the basics. Make sure that the you know the rent or mortgage is going to get paid, and the clients know what the hell's going on, and there's a contact person to deal with all of it. <sighs> I know, not not a whole lot of fun. I get it, I get it, but very important. So take care of your shit, people. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, 
you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Pete Grossman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and you're you're here courtesy of our mutual friend. I may say Greg's last name wrong. Greg Levis. Yeah, I think that's correct. It's Levis or Livis. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Sorry, Greg. We're, we're not doing it justice if you're listening. Anyways, Greg brought you and your studio partner, Andy, to my attention, and that's how we're here today. So, yeah, we'll dig in. Let's start with where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up here in the Chicago area, just a couple miles outside of the city in a nearby suburb. And I've lived here my whole life. And about 10 years ago, actually, I moved into the studio building here in the neighborhood of Pilsen. And we'll talk, we'll talk all about the studio itself, but tell me about your upbringing. Did you have brothers or sisters? Uh, yeah, I've got an older sister. And that's it. My household wasn't particularly musical. Mm -hmm. Um, No one really played any instruments. I think she took piano lessons for a little bit. And my dad played in like marching band in high school. But other than that, there was not really a whole lot of music other than just the radio. My parents playing like oldies and like soft rock and whatnot. And that was really the extent extent of music in the house when I was growing up. Were you musical? Music kind of caught my attention mm-hmm. when I was like maybe seven or eight years old. I really started paying attention and seeing like what was on VH1 and MTV whenever my parents would allow. So I ended up really kind of getting my first like music cassettes and stuff, you know, in the early 90s, late 80s, uh, just from stuff that I was seeing on MTV. And those are kind of like my earliest musical memories, at least, is just, yeah, seeing what was in circulation at that time. And it was mostly like hard rock and rock and stuff like that, that really kind of caught my interest from the get-go. When did you start becoming aware of the production of records and, and the recording and the process or credits and raising questions about how was this put together? I, I would say in junior high, I kind of started messing around with like the Windows recording app and would just like record myself playing a guitar riff and then trying to like solo over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was like my very first foray into a very basic level of recording. And then in high school, I eventually put together a computer to record on and got an interface and started 
doing it myself probably about when I, I was like about 15 or 16 years old. Where were you getting your information about recording? Where were you seeking inspiration or, or guidance? I had a search. I found books either at the library or at the bookstore. I pretty much like go to the bookstore because this was pre-YouTube. You know, this is the late 90s at this point. So there wasn't a whole lot of even forums at that point. I think Gearspace was around possibly in the late 90s, but that might have been more of an early 2000s. I can't uh, remember. Thing. So yeah, it was just like how to record books that you would find at the local bookstore. And a lot of that kind of wasn't super relevant <laughs> to recording modern, modern heavy music. So I would do stuff that the book said and be kind of confused on why it wasn't turning out the way I heard it in my head. Hmm. You were recording on what kind of an interface at that time? The first interface I'd gotten was uh, an M-Audio Delta 1010. It mm. was like an eight input, eight output. I had a little card that you'd put in the PCI slot. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just had like a little accompanying, I figured, I think it was an SM Pro Audio eight channel mic preamp. Mm -hmm. And that was, that, that was it. So it was a pretty basic, I needed eight channels because I knew I wanted to record drums because I was kind of in bands at that time. So that was like the cheapest interface you could get at that point in time. You were playing guitar, right? Uh, yeah. When did that happen? Uh, I got my first guitar when I was in third grade. I went several years without really knowing how to play it because uh -huh. my folks were like, hey, like you're really serious. We could get lessons, but it was like a Toys R Us guitar with like a little amplifier built into it. Hmm. And I ended up taking lessons in about sixth grade. And I realized that I was playing upside down. I didn't realize that I was playing a right-handed guitar like backwards. So when I started taking lessons, my instructor was like, which way feels more comfortable? And turns out it was left-handed. So then I finally got the guitar set up properly for left-handed and learned how to tune it. And that's kind of when I really started being able to play and like learn Metallica riffs and stuff like that. Right. Were your lessons inspirational? Did the doors start to open like, oh, I'm playing the guitar backwards. Oh, let's restring the guitar in the correct way. Oh, absolutely. Because I was really clueless and just kind of messing around before then. And then I'm like, oh, wow, actually, he can come and like teach me songs. I think it was an Everclear song that was popular at the time, that and like Enter Sandman. And then once I kind of got the feedback of like, oh, yeah, that sounds like this song, that's when it kind of got really exciting for me. And that's when I got serious about it. Would you say that that was becoming a focus of your attention in your early years when you were in like middle school and, and high school? Oh, for sure. Yeah. The guitar was like my absolute favorite thing to do. And, you know, I would play for, for hours. Yeah. But you didn't play in school band, did you? Not until high school. I mm -hmm. ended up playing in a jazz band in high school, mostly because it was either that or you'd play in concert band and you'd then be expected to play like football games and basketball games. And I just like wasn't interested in that. I thought that playing jazz was much cooler, much more up in my alley. Mm -hmm. So I took away a little bit from that of just like playing in a big ensemble like that and reading charts and whatnot you know, with chords that I had no idea what they were when I first started. Mm -hmm. Did you have your sights set on being a professional musician? Did you intend on playing in bands beyond school? I did. I feel like from a very young age, one of my best friends who I'm currently in a band with still, I had met in grade school. And the moment we met, we're like, yeah, let's start a band. And that was kind of always just an aspiration of even just being able to play in front of a crowd, something as simple as that. We wanted to kind of just emulate all the musicians that we were both really, really into. How successful were you at that? 
I played in several bands, and then that's how Andy and I met, you know, about 21 years ago or so. So I've been in bands I've toured, so I've toured, toured the U.S., some of Canada, Europe over the years, but never, like, headlining band kind of status in any of that. But okay. we definitely grinded and did it to the fullest capacity that we were able to when we were younger. Yeah, but you, you still play. Yeah, yep. Which is great because some people kind of come to that realization. They're like, eh, I don't really think I'm going to be a player anymore. And then they start to divest in playing and, and really kind of focus on becoming recording professionals. So where was that intersection for you that you, you kept playing, but also took on this new role as a recording professional? That probably started coming in about 2007, 2008. That's kind of when this, we got the studio up and going. I went to college for audio as well. So somewhere in that point when I was between the age of like maybe 20 to 24, I had the idea that I wanted to be able to make a living while I wasn't touring, assuming that I would keep playing like that. So I could be home, record bands, go on tour, and then have something in the interim. So that's kind of when I started balancing at that point of me being almost equal parts recording, production, and guitarist in a band. And mm. then over the years, the production aspect took over, but I still kind of kept playing in bands to a much lesser priority. Where did you go to school? Uh, I went to Columbia College here in Chicago. Uh -huh. So I bounced around. I, I majored in sound recording, but I also did take music classes because I still wasn't sure if I wanted to like get a degree in playing music. And then I realized that I'm doing music at the capacity that I really want to. I don't want to play guitar for a living in that regard, other than being in bands and writing my own stuff. So then I then tilted the focus just in, into production so I can have something that's music-related and hopefully make some sort of living off of that. Tell me about the decision to open a studio. Tell me about the process of finding the building, and was there any kind of business plan, or did you just kind of say, hey... We like recording. Let's get a building and start doing this. <laughs> yeah. So I had, I had been freelancing at a couple studios. Once I got into school at Columbia, I got the confidence of, oh, I, I know how to work my way around like a legit studio now. So I had done some freelancing and there was a studio that I had been working out of here and there that was closing down. And they were one of the only studios that was affordable enough for me to bring my clients to and that had a good gear list. They had a nice like Neotech console. It was in a LAN, just like Greg got. So when, as they were closing, I asked him what he was selling. So I ended up buying some of the stuff from that studio. And I had access to a space, the same space that we're currently at. The building's been to my family since the 60s. So I'm like the third generation in this building. So it was just a matter of clearing out the space. It was a warehouse filled with old industrial rubber boots and stuff like that. Wow. Uh, so my parents were like, hey, like if you clear out all of this old junk, like there's a lot of space to be had here that's just dead, that hasn't been making any sort of income. So if you have any plans or want to use it, like you clear the space out and you could use it as long as it doesn't interfere with the family's day business. So I took to that pretty seriously. And that was in about 2005, right when... Hurricane Katrina happened. I remember vividly. It was like the perfect, like, wow, we can not only clear out the space, but like give it to people that really need it down there. So I got a bunch of friends together and some of my family included, and we just started loading up every charity truck and to the point where they would not come back. <laughs> 
So no charity, like everyone had their fill of rubber boots and waiters and all of that. And that felt really good to get that out. You got to fill in the gap here. So what's the family business? Okay. So my family's business, um, when my grandpa started it, he was in like rubber product distribution. So he was selling like rubber boots and industrial gear and stuff like that to city workers and to the stockyards here in Chicago. Then over the years, my dad took it over. There was just a surplus of this stuff. And they also did cutting boards for like restaurant suppliers. So that's currently what the business does. It's like one facet of it is doing cutting boards for restaurants. And then the other facet is doing like butcher blocks, countertops. So we've got a wood shop just on the other side of the wall here that does that. And then my dad, you know, some he retired, but still does cutting up orders and getting them ready to ship out on UPS. And that's pretty much the gist of it. So I've also grown up working part-time or full-time and running the business over the years as well. So it's kind of convenient that I've got both situations here. Yeah. And and so the family owns the building. Correct. Yeah. Wow. That's a great position to be in. Yeah. So it was really a no-brainer. It was like, okay, this is my chance for very little risk. <laughs> I had been using the space kind of on nights and weekends with my little mobile setup and bringing a drummer in when the business wasn't operating before. So it really made a lot of sense to just go ahead and do it and just try and invest what I could in the gear. Wow. That's amazing. How many square feet is your space? And just for the audience, so the, the name of the studio is Bricktop Recording. And obviously I'll include a link in the show notes as I always do. But tell us about the space. Tell us square footage. What are we at there? Sure. So the warehouse that the studio is in is about roughly around 6,000 square feet, or it might be somewhere between four and 6,000 square feet. The studios themselves, so we've got an A room, which altogether takes up about 1,000 square feet. And then I've got a B room that I'm currently in that uh, is for mixing and overdubs. And that takes up probably another six, 700 square feet. So we're a little under 2,000 square feet. But the nice thing is our building's got like 18-foot ceilings. So when we built out our live room, we're like, we're going to utilize every inch of the ceiling height that we've got here. Wow. That's a good amount of space. Were there any challenges in the in the building of the space? Yeah, absolutely. A, coming from the family business, I was familiar with woodworking and had done a bunch, you know, growing up, but I had never built out anything. So both Andy and I took to uh, some forums, you know, Gearspace, and there was a forum called the John L. Sayers Forum, which I think, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But that was a big reference for me. In addition to school, where I learned some acoustics, that forum, I really like dug in and saw all the construction, how things were built properly, and tried to recreate that the best I could and use what materials we had. Because we had a lot of like building materials and wood or laying around. So when we built our first room, I did most of that with like found objects around the warehouse and the wood shop. Being that you have a family whose business has access to certain materials, did you have a line on getting plywood or two by fours at a better rate? Or did you just go to the traditional route and get it through normal supply channels? So it was a mixture of both. The first room, we built our isolation room first because we were just recording in the open warehouse once we cleared out the space. And the isolation room we built, a lot of the plywood was laying around, a lot of like lumber was laying around, some insulation was. So I would say about 75% of that first room we built was all with stuff that was laying around here. And then after that, we had to go, you know, the traditional route. But yeah, we did have some contractor pricing and all of that that we were able to kind of utilize as well when we were building it out. Yeah, that's great. What about 
you know, I've, I've seen some things on Chicago that is pretty interesting to say the least <laughs> in terms of how business is done. Did you have any challenges there? No, I mean, we pretty much flew under the radar because we've got trucks coming in and out all the time, material coming in and out of the time. So we were able to do it pretty discreetly when we were first starting it up. So, yeah. so trucks going in and out. So you're not really drawing a lot of attention from the city of Chicago to come and like get up in your business. So you and Andy, and this is Andy Nelson we're talking about, audience. Correct. And Andy will be on a future episode. Was it just the two of you or did you have any friends or family helping you construct? It was primarily the two of us and then other friends of ours, like our bandmates and stuff would come by and help out when we're putting up walls or when we need extra manpower as well. I think my dad helped out a little bit as well too. Yeah, because he had been upholding the building and doing all renovations and stuff around it. So he was also very, showed us how to do things properly. <laughs> but the bulk of the work was just myself and Andy. And then how did you decide how the business was going to run? Like I was asking before, was this kind of improvising as you were going along or, or did you like sit down and go, okay, here's what we're doing. We're going to build the studio. We're going to call it this. This is going to be how it all works. What was the the thinking there? Yeah, I mean, we didn't really have like a written out plan per se. It was kind of just like, cool, we're both going to pitch in like every session that we bring in, we're going to each pitch in this much money that goes of that to the studio to invest in more gear and to build more rooms and so on and so forth. So we, the studio would just take a cut, kind of like how most studios, if you go to freelance, it's just like, okay, cool, studios this much per day. And then that's just kind of how, how it's been run. Mm. Has any of the family businesses been disruptive along the way? Or did you manage to build the studio in such a way that acoustically you're not being bombarded by other businesses? Yeah, no, we haven't had any any issues. We built it kind of to like the bare, the bare minimum of like, okay, this will insulate us from any of the noise. Like the wood shop is in a sister building, so it's across a brick wall. So any noise from there doesn't come through. And it's pretty much like office space. And then in the far back of the warehouse is where some of the plastic boards are cut. So we've got a good amount of physical distance between any of the noisy aspects of the business. So fortunately, it hasn't been an issue with any of that or our neighbors or anything. And then once you were up and running, what was the strategy there? Were you obviously you're going to record your own stuff, but how did you start to spread the word and market the studio? Well, both Andy and I, we were playing in bands together at the po at that time, and we were both had our own streams of clients and friends. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it just happened was just word of mouth. We didn't have a whole lot of projects in the beginning, but we had enough because we had pretty low overhead because we're sharing the warehouse space with my family's business and we don't have to pay like a landlord exorbitant rent or anything like that. And the buildings were paid for before my dad even inherited the business. So it's like, okay, as long as we can contribute to property taxes and expenses like that, you know, we fortunately had had a pretty low overhead. So we didn't have to like really go down the path of advertising and doing all that. Everything just kind of happened naturally. So a lot of word of mouth. Yeah. Word of mouth, just being involved with the local like hardcore and metal scenes and being people that other bands were familiar with already. Yeah. So essentially it was you and Andy running this place, right? Yeah, yeah. How do you manage the studio calendar? How do you manage to not step on each other? And what do you do about sessions that might go a little bit longer? How is that dealt with? 
so it's pretty much first come first serve so if andy ends up booking like a full month then i won't be able to do any drum tracking in the a room or anything like that for a while but it's pretty rare it's like we both over the years especially in an effort to keep ourselves from getting burnt out it's like okay if either of us has like a project that's running like seven to ten days long we're not going to be tracking something the, for the next week or two. At least myself, I always try to buffer buffer time in between that, and then that gives me time to mix and master and do stuff like that without having to be in there with eight, nine-hour straight days just with clients. So it kind of ends up balancing itself out. Correct me if I'm wrong. You graduate from college, and you go right into building the studio? Or, or like, what was the time lag between college in the end of studio construction? So I, I graduated in 2007. So I was actually building the studio prior to even graduating. I was still in school. And the way that my classes had worked out for like the last like year and a half was like, I had a lot of time because there was a lot of classes I couldn't progress until I took one and then the next. So I ended up going an extra, an extra semester, I guess. So I ended up doing four and a half, maybe five years just because I couldn't, progress to the next class until I took the prerequisite and so on and so forth. So I had time to build and then I was also working for my family's business. So I was already in the space. So anytime there was, I wasn't really needed, I would just start building or start clearing space out or whatnot. This has been your first and only studio since graduating, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Wow. How many years has the studio been open? I believe it's been open, like, officially, I, I consider, like, 2006, maybe. So, it's been about 18 years. Wow. Which is kind of very hard to believe <laughs> at this at this point. Let's talk about COVID. Like, how did COVID affect you all? Well, it canceled every single session for the most part. Andy had a big project that had come through that had just started right around when Chicago was shutting down. And they were all like, hey, we're just going to go here, come back. And no one's going to mess around. We're all going to be very serious about it. But then after that, like we didn't have sessions for several months. And then during that point, I randomly got the opportunity to start recording voiceover talent for commercial work. One of my wife's colleagues was is a voiceover artist and needed a studio space to record voiceovers at. So I kind of pivoted and started just recording voiceovers for like Olive Garden and McDonald's and Goodyear and like all these crazy, huge corporate companies just like out of nowhere. So I ended up doing that quite a bit because this woman's agent just was like, she was like, hey, do you have time tomorrow? Can I bring someone in? And yeah, they would come in masked. We wouldn't even like really cross paths. They would go straight into the isolation room I've got in my B room here. And I would interface over Zoom or whatnot with the producers and just hit record and sit there for an hour, a couple hours. Amazing. Great pivot. So you're running a studio. Your world is primarily metal, is it not? Correct, yeah. I'm sure the studio is really catering to that. So did you feel like you had to make any changes to accommodate this corporate client? You know, <laughs> I mean, I may have felt slightly embarrassed considering this place is like a very DIY, a lot of unfinished decorative things. And the warehouse itself is just got stuff all over it, like outside of the studio. So I was maybe a little more self-conscious of how the place looked because <laughs> when band dudes come in, they're just like, oh, cool, this place is sweet. Like this place is weird and has stuff all over. Like, But then when the corporate clients came in, I was just like, okay, maybe 
maybe I put some more thought into the aesthetics outside of here, but I didn't really end up changing anything. And a lot of those projects ended up fizzling out once all the post houses and whatnot started opening back up. Yeah. What did that teach you about the business in terms of that time period of COVID and having to pivot to doing voiceovers? Did it change anything post-COVID for you? I feel like I, I didn't do anything intentionally to pivot, but I did end up getting a lot more remote mixing and mastering work mm -hmm. throughout that when people were doing all of their like isolation projects and whatnot. So I feel like I, I, I had already had a good amount of mixing and mastering jobs that were remote prior to that. But I feel like musicians became maybe a lot more comfortable recording themselves and sending it off to be mixed by someone. So I feel like that kind of took over a little bit more coming out of COVID and during COVID, I started getting more opportunities for remote work like that, which weren't maybe as prevalent prior. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. The fact that the family owns the building, that's the sweetest deal of the century. That's always the hardest part for a lot of people. It's like they're renting buildings or, or they're buying buildings and they still got to pay the mortgage on that building. But you're in that position where you don't even though you're, you are contributing to, I'm sure, you know, utilities and as you said, property taxes, which inevitably come. So while it was challenging, at least there was a little bit of the edge taken off by that factor, I assume. For sure, for sure. And then, you know, I had uh, all of the staff for my family's business, we kind of furloughed and we had a bunch of orders that I'm like, well, I'm going to do a little bit of wood shop work because I can do it. I'm here. I live on the premise. So I kind of did some of that as well during that time. And we also had, you know, a three-year-old, I think he was two to three years old at that time. So then kind of gave me some time at home as well. So yeah, that's kind of how, how we handled that. You live there. Yes. Tell me about that. Like obviously in a separate part 
Yeah, it's in a separate entrance and everything. So we essentially have two buildings that are conjoined. So we've got the, the warehouse with the studio and kind of like the office. And then the second building that's attached has the wood shop on the first floor. And then I live on the second floor above the wood shop. So I actually do have to go out a door, see the light of day for 10 seconds and go into another room. So it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, I consider the studio almost like my garage studio. Like it's like, it's like a home studio, but it's in a commercial space. Right, right. Well, that's cool. You're close to home. So as things develop over time with family, you, you're right there. Yeah, exactly. Or it's like, if my wife's like, oh, I got to step out. Can you watch the kid for 15 minutes? And if I don't have like clients in with me, I'm like, oh yeah, I could come up, take a little break from mixing, hang out for a little bit, go back down. And it's a blessing. And it's also like, it's hard to not get myself to go down like every night after the kids go to bed. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I've got all this stuff. I've got all these projects to do. I'm like, I try to be really speedy with my turnaround. So it's very hard for me to not go down every single night to continue working or to just like, just to play guitar or get more comfortable with maybe a piece of equipment that I mm -hmm. have acquired or whatnot. Well, so over, once again, 30,000 foot view of the 18 year period that you've, you've been there, how have things progressed? How have things changed? You know, I mean, obviously our attitudes change and we mature as we have family and we have kids. So does that directly change your thinking about how the studio is run or how you do things. If you were to look back at year one and compare it to year 18, has there been a lot of change for you and the studio? Absolutely. So the, even just from a build-out standpoint, we did it over long increments of time. So like in 2007, we built our first room, which was like, what is our dead room now? Where we just stashed like amps and vocalists. And then in the, a year later, we finally built the control room up. And then it, it took us a few years until 2011 to clear out all the space we needed to and build our live room. And then the B room came about four years after that. In about 2015, I built this B room up. And then on top of that, like maybe, I think it was 2020. Yeah. The summer of 2020, we started getting bands looking to come here again. And We've always allowed bands to crash here, which has been a big selling point. And uh, we do get a lot of bands from out of town. So we finally built in like a room for them. Mm -hmm. So bands could just have a band room and then they still have access to like the communal kitchen and bathroom and all of that. But then like with COVID still kind of coming out of that, we were like, okay, we don't want all these guys just like sleep, <laughs> sleeping in one control room, sleeping in the other control room, sleeping in my office. So we want wanted to contain everyone. So <laughs> that was like kind of one of the last major, last like building projects we did here was just about four years ago, kind of finishing up that. And then even just from a, a standpoint of time management, I know that's something that's talked about quite a bit on here, but you know, back in the early days, it's like, yeah, I'll record until midnight or 1am, 2am, you know, whatever. I would do these like really ridiculous long days. Mm. And maybe book out like project after project and then just get like, oh, I haven't had a day off in like three weeks. I've just been with clients. So over the years, it's just been really being more cognizant of my time. And especially with having a family, you're just forced into that where I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to book a session this week because we got all of this other stuff going on. I'm going to try and get them in over here or get in um, one of my friends that engineers or that used to engineer here that has his own studio who runs it where Greg works out of. He comes in and after I had my second kid, I'm just like, hey man, I'm like, can you sit in and just like do some tracking sessions for me? So I'm like, if I've got like eight days in the studio, I'm like, I'm going to need a day off in there or just time to like, 
help out with the family and whatnot. So fortunately, uh, Adrian, who runs Wall of Sound, where Greg also records out of, he uh, kind of stepped in for me and started doing a bunch of tracking sessions and still is. So I can kind of like get in, set up, get some tracking in. He'll come in, finish out the day, spend a couple days doing that. And so that's been a big change over the past like two years for me personally as well. So... Well, I mean, you're in a position where unless the family were to say, hey, we want to sell the building, I mean, you could conceivably just stay there for your entire career if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's certainly something that is cool. I mean, we don't have like a yard or a basement or like any any of that, that like, I'm like, oh man, it'd be nice to just let the dog outside rather than have to just walk him and have somewhere for the kids to play. So it's like, we do miss some aspects of just having a home because we're very close to downtown. So it's pretty busy. Fortunately, it's like parking's really easy, but it's just kind of like everything else about it's great because just kind of walk downstairs, get some work in. I could do some quick revisions, come back up. So yeah, feasibly we want to, stay here as long as we can, assuming, you know, the property taxes just don't keep going crazy on us. Right, right. So in that 18 years, have there been any significant challenges? I mean, other than COVID, obviously, that's a given. But have there been any severe challenges in that 18 years for you with this studio where you were like, ah, I remember the year of whatever it was because of this? Outside of like 2020, (laughs) that was really like the big one. Outside of that, just like not getting worn down, like, okay, I've just put in like eight hours at the family business and now I've got to go work on building this studio because I've got clients booked to like work in here. So times when we were actually physically building things out and I was also renovating, I was renovating where we currently live. So I did a lot of the work up there myself because it It had been kind of rented out as like an artist loft and it was a photography studio before we moved in. So I was juggling, basically playing contractor, doing a lot of the physical labor to renovate our home upstairs, in addition to working for my family's business and then in addition to doing audio work. So that for me was a very busy time where I would just be, and I didn't live here at that point either. So I still have to go home and I'd be maybe working on the house all day and then recording at night. So that those were probably some of the hardest. And it probably took me about a little over two years from the point of like starting the renovations, actually moving in, or it might've been closer to three almost. Wow. Wow. Okay. Good Midwest work ethic and <laughs> work there. What about, I was focusing there on the challenges. Have you had any significant victories over the last 18 years that you're just like very proud of in terms of particular clients or or situations that came up that you're really proud of? Yeah. I mean, we've been really fortunate to have a lot of really great, hardworking clients, which I feel like maybe around Andy being in Weekend Nachos, they were a band that were pretty well known in the hardcore community. So from the get-go, once that band started touring and, and doing more, Andy started bringing in a lot of bands from not Chicago, a lot of more national talent that were also doing the touring grind and whatnot. And then uh, yeah, I've done uh, promos for Ludwig Drums. They came in and shot some promo videos for a, a drum set they released maybe about six, seven years ago, and they brought in Styx Jams. He's the drummer for Chance the Rapper and Vic Mensa and like all these really notable hip-hop guys. So that was a really cool person, not only to have Ludwig, but also having him as a drummer. And then we've had 
members of Neurosis come in and record here with Sanford Parker, who's another really well-known, kind of established guy in the heavy metal scene that plays in bands and has been producing a lot. And yeah, those are some big ones that come off the top of my mind, yeah, at least. Yeah, that's great. Do you have, not only just personally, but business-wise with the studio, do you have a particular financial philosophy? In other words, are you a, are you a spender? Or are you a saver? Do you have a strategy now, especially as a dad, thinking in terms of the future, not only for family, but for your business? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have definitely grown a lot more conservative with my spending. Mm -hmm. In the early days, it's like, okay, cool. Like, I've got pretty good credit and I'm getting offers for like 0% financing. (laughs) So I would make some splurges and just make sure that I can pay this off according to the terms of that because that can get really sticky. Whereas like, oh, you have to pay the same exact amount over 36 months and you can't like oh, I'm just going to pay this off. And then you get hit with all this interest. So I kind of learned how to play a lot of the credit cards that were giving these 0% financing offers. And then once we kind of got all the gear that we needed, then I started to slow down a little bit. Then we built a B room and then I had to start splurging again <laughs> again on stuff. But now for the last couple of years, we've been at a point where it's like, okay, I'm trying to save, trying to keep, especially with the family, that's been a huge, huge motivation for not spending as much on the studio gear and my own gear for me personally as well. So it's really shifted from not being reckless, but being very much spendy to basically being very, very cautious. It's like, okay, do I really need this piece of gear. Will this earn me more clients? Will this piece of gear improve my recordings that much that I could justify spending whatever type of money on it? It's funny how like we we start out very enamored by all, all of the gear. And then over the course of time, I don't know if it's been your experience, but you kind of get to a point where you're just like, oh, okay, I don't need another one of those. Or, oh, I can ignore that ad. Or when you get as you say, everything you need to do the job, then you really start to become choosy and picky. It's like, well, why do I need to spend a thousand dollars on that? We've already got four of those or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. And I think both Andy and I were at a point where we're like, okay, yeah, like I've got everything I need. It's like, yeah, I would love like a couple more of this compressor or EQ. But I'm like, actually, when I set up, I'm still, there's still a lot of gear that I'm not using every single day. So I'm like, okay, I don't think I need anything. I'm like pretty happy with where we're at. And then having an assortment of different preamps and compressors and stuff, I realize that, you know, maybe they don't make as much of a difference. It's been hyped up and that I used to think like, oh, I need this preamp if I want this sound. Mm. So I feel like my philosophy on that has also changed too, where it's like, okay, well, yeah, all the necessities are met. So... Yeah. So looking over your gear list on your website, is it accurate to say that the studio is not built around a console and more built around different mic pre's? Correct. Yeah. When we initially started, we had a Trident T24 console. So we were initially based around a console. And then over the years, it's like I had parts modded because stuff would break down. I'm like, well, if I'm paying someone to like fix it, I might as well like upgrade the master section or put in like upgraded op amps, blah, blah, blah. And then it just got to a point where we were accumulating enough outboard gear that I was just using the console for monitoring and cue sends and talkback and the occasional like hi-hat and ride mic or something. Mm -hmm. So it made a lot of sense then of just like, well, this is taking up a lot of space and we're kind of using all this other gear 
primarily for you know when we're tracking. And I feel like pretty early on, I would mix on it, but then like I found recalling mixes on a vintage board like that, very difficult and time consuming to just take all the notes on every EQ point where everything was patched in. So then revisions became a very tedious thing for me. And then it would be like, oh, well, there's another session going on tomorrow. I've got to strike this whole thing because the band didn't get back to me in time. And so then I just kind of stopped mixing on it. And we really haven't looked back since. We got rid of it in, I think, 2012 or 2011. Okay, so there's Bricktop West and there's Bricktop East. So these are two different control rooms, right? Correct, yeah. And do they feed into the same live room? They don't. That's something that I get asked pretty often and do contemplate doing. But by and large, or Bricktop West is our A room, basically. And Bricktop East is the overdub mixing mastering suite that I built out. Yeah, I, I've always toyed with the idea of tying into the live room, but whenever I'm in here and want to use it, if the other room's open, I would just use that control room. So I really haven't had a need to tie them in together because there's usually, if, if that room is open, I'll track in there. If it's not, then I'll be in here. So anytime I'm doing any sort of tracking projects, it's like the room's already tied up anyways. So Right, right. Makes sense. Is there more space in the warehouse that you're in or the, or the building that you're in to expand more? There is, there is the possibility to, you know, not a ton of space, but I've been thinking of like, man, it'd be really nice to have another, to expand the size of the isolation room in my B room, just so like I could fit a drum set, but it's literally gives the drummer just enough space to walk into the door and sit down. So it's tight enough to record drums, which I've done before, but it's not ideal. So I could expand that room a little bit more if I wanted to. So there is a little bit more space for expansion with still w without stepping on the toes of the business, but it would just then be a matter of finding the time to do it. And have you ever contemplated building out an extra space for a different engineer who could just rent that space from you? Yeah, it's something that I've thought about. I've also thought about potentially putting in like a rehearsal room, but just like the way that the two studios are laid out, they're placed in the warehouse in the places that were most easily cleared out. Mm. So I feel like if I were to do that, I would have to really either step on some of the space that the business is using and like move the B room to another spot and then have another room for like a rehearsal room or something. But that would be nice just because sometimes like my bands want to rehearse or Andy's band wants to rehearse, but it's like, okay, we've got to... Uh, wait until like 8 p.m. and then we have to set up in a corner of the live room so we don't impede on whatever mic'd up drums or whatever's going on, but we make it work. It's not like either of our bands rehearse that often to uh -huh. kind of necessitate that, but a rehearsal room would be something that I would like to add on if I found the space and time to do it. Looking into the future of the studio and looking at how things are done, are there things that you wish that you plan on doing in the future that you're like, okay, in the next 10 years, I'd like to see this happen. Fill in the blanks there. What, what would that be? That's a good question. I think pretty much like what I may have just been talking about, like maybe making the B room a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. That would be something that at least in my current peripheral vision would be something that I would like to do just because both Andy and I are both really busy. So that would open up a chance for me to do more work and for him too. So that, that, and then, yeah, having like a rehearsal space in here as well that you could do, could also double as just like a pre-production room where like bands could either rent that out and just like record demos themselves or bands that we're tracking, we could go in there and just like hash out some ideas type of thing. So really those, those would be the, the main things in addition to 
maybe making the A-room control room a little bit bigger because now that we don't have uh, an amp tech in the space right next to it, we can maybe make that room a little bit bigger if we needed. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the top of mind things I can think of that in the next 10 years could be potential things to improve upon and maybe even just cosmetically just getting all of the loose storage stuff out of here as well. Yeah. You know, it's inspiring to me. I've been in the Bay Area here since 1988 and I've watched over time as studio after studio has closed and most of the studios that exist in the Bay Area for the most part are primarily located in the East Bay, which would be Oakland, Berkeley, and and various places like that, as well as further out. Chicago seems to maintain a strong stable of studios, whether it's you guys or Electrical or Matt Hennessy's place. There doesn't seem to be the same dynamic going on there as there is here. Do you have any thoughts on that? Am I wrong? No, like when you put it that way, yeah, there are definitely some of the staples. There are a lot of studios that do close or relocate. A lot of the times it's like the studio will be in the same spot for a number of years and then, oh, the neighborhood's coming up and now the property tax goes up, rent goes up, and now they move further to the outskirts. So mm. I feel like a lot of studios kind of end up just moving around. But yeah, you know, we, we, we have our fair share of studios that have come and gone. But a lot of places that you've mentioned and a few others that, yeah, have been around for 10, 15 years and are still going strong. So I, f- I feel like we have a, a robust community of music across so many genres that it kind of allows a lot of these places to stay in business. Yeah, and I think, and I named three examples there, you, Matt's place, and Steve's place. The common denominator amongst those three that I've named is you all own the buildings. Yes, yeah. And that makes a difference. It does. Makes a huge difference. And I've kind of ranted on this before that I don't think it's completely stupid or anything or, you know, fool's errand to set up shop in a rented space, but it definitely presents another level of challenge to studio owners when they don't control the real estate. Absolutely. And then too, you have to figure out like, oh, if you get kicked out, you've got to find a place for your gear or what do you do? Do you salvage all the insulation and what building supplies you can? Like, oh, I know. You know, you're kind of... I've been there. Like all the effort and money spent on construction supplies and wiring, it's just like, you move out, what are you going to do? Pull all the Mogami cable out of the wall? Yeah. <laughs> so a <laughs> little bit of a... Uh, of a challenge in that department. So it just, it kind of just reinforces my view on that, that, and I don't know if you'd have the same advice. You were fortunate that it was in the family and that you didn't have to actively go out and hunt down a building and go through that, that buying process. But I'm sure it's informed how, if you were to ever leave this spot, you probably would put yourself in a position to own the building because to go through all that effort and then have somebody say, well, we're jacking up the rent. Are you in or out? And then if you're forced yeah. out, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. If I had to like move out of here, I would probably try and like get a house that had a big enough garage or like a barn or something to just have on site with the house. It's similar to my situation here, but I, if we had to move out of this building or if we sold it, I would not try to uh, set up shop in another commercial space off the bat at least. I would try to get something that I can integrate into my living situation, which seems to be the way a lot of producers are are doing it. I think that's the smart way to have everything tied up together so you're not paying two mortgages or you know, renting a mortgage and all of that too. 
Absolutely. For you audience listening, it's bricktoprecording.com. Link will be in the show notes and I'll throw in uh, the Instagram handle since that's where I spend a lot of my time. So thanks for making time for me and and coming on the show. I really appreciate it. We look forward to uh, having Andy join us and talk about his experience. And thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. And also uh, thanks, Greg, for uh, getting us in touch. Absolutely. Thank you, Greg. All right, well, you take care and thanks again, Pete. All right, thanks. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Pete Grossman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to remind you to head on over to your podcast aggregator. Leave a five-star review. Write up a little note of love, if you will, to tell everybody else that something cool is going on here. That would greatly be appreciated. That is all for me today. Want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Chuck Smith greeting you at the top of the show. Feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about Things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.